Welcome to the Commonwealth Club of California radio show, America's longest-running radio program. I'm Gloria Duffy, president and CEO of the club, a nonpartisan, nonprofit public forum that's been presenting thought leaders on important issues of the day for 120 years. On today's program, our speaker has to explain something. Senator Amy Klobuchar titled her new book, The Joy of Politics, which will strike some people as odd. But Klobuchar is someone who knows politics inside and out. She has served as a member of the United States Senate from the state of Minnesota since 2007. And in that time, she has witnessed the storming of the Capitol on January 6, 2021, and she's campaigned for the presidency. She's also faced some tough times personally. Her husband battled COVID-19, she was diagnosed with cancer, and her father passed away. And yet she finds joy in the political realm. We invited her to make a return visit to the Commonwealth Club to discuss what drives her and what it's like in the nation's capital these days. The senator is in conversation with Dee Dee Myers, who is no stranger to the political hot seat. The inspiration for the popular character of C.J. Craig on the West Wing, Myers is a political analyst who served as the White House press secretary during the first two years of the Clinton administration. She currently serves as a senior advisor to California Governor Gavin Newsom and as director of the governor's Office of Business and Economic Development. This program is part of our Good Lit series underwritten by the Bernard Osher Foundation. Before we begin the conversation, we wanted to play a little bit of Senator Klobuchar reading from her book for you. This is from The Joy of Politics. When it comes to my own work, I have realized that through all the sludge, muck, and mudslinging of politics, there is still the one thing that keeps drawing me back, the one thing that has grounded me. It is our democracy. That's why I so loved Bono's speech. The touchstone of Bono's talk was what was happening in Ukraine, where, as he described it, Ukrainians were actually living, actually dying for the ideal that is freedom. Ukraine, in many ways, defined my own work in 2022. First, there was the obvious. I went there and championed the cause. I visited with President Zelensky three times during the last year, twice in his home country and once at the Munich Security Conference, where he bravely traveled to ask for the world's help. Everyone had counted him out, but he defied them all. He went to the Kiev street corner the first night of the invasion and said three simple words. We are here. As Bono described it, Ukrainians have been mustering everything they have to preserve their freedom, meeting and exceeding President Zelensky's courage and call to fight back. Shopkeepers making Molotov cocktails, ballet dancers wearing combat gear, freedom in Ukraine means people who don't want to take up arms taking up arms. And Bono's speech went beyond the international to also thanking our own public servants here at home who toil away in the conference room trenches, writing the laws and reading the documents and legalese, doing the not always glamorous work of our own democracy. I think about that a lot. I think about my Senate colleagues and their staffs, both Democrats and Republicans, and yes, 
three independents, crafting bills late into the night and painstakingly working to reach agreement on amendments. I think about the White House and agency staff doing the same and responding to all kinds of crises. I think about brave Republicans like Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger and Jeff Flake who put their whole careers on the line just to buck Donald Trump and stand up for our Constitution and our country. I think about my constituents reading the news, asking me detailed questions about complex issues of war and peace and health and tax policy. When I need any inspiration, I conjure up the images of the veterans gathered at the memorials, the volunteers at the food banks, the young people protesting injustice, the workers working extra shifts or extra jobs just to pay the rent and put food on the table for their families. As time goes on, I continue to gravitate toward issues and causes where the critics and special interests are so loud, but where the people who I am standing up for are either silenced or suppressed by the big guys with all the power. The Afghan refugees, so many of whom bravely stood with our country, I figure they deserve an advocate. The people who can't afford prescription drugs while the big pharma companies bring in mountains of money. The people who want to vote but struggle with state barriers put in place for the sole purpose of making it harder for them to do so. The small newspapers and radio stations struggling to stay afloat just to report the high school football scores and the latest actions of the local city council, all while the major tech companies rake in billions of dollars and use their content at will. The small businesses squeezed out by monopolies. The people of Ukraine, the underdogs invaded by a nuclear and military superpower, who stood up just when everyone had counted them out. Be nice to your mom this weekend, my husband once told my daughter. She has the biggest companies the world has ever known up against her, and she's been banned from Russia. But the point is, in a democracy, we can do these things, we can make our case, and we can make progress, but only if we cherish that democracy and fight for it. So I'll end this with Bono and the greatest speech you have probably never heard of. America. America is a song to me. I caught the melody line early, when my life needed saving. As a teenager in Dublin, America's song came on the radio like a surge of static electricity, knocked me out of my bed, knocked me out of my head. You know, the song sounded like Elvis. It sounded like Bobby Dylan, sounded like Aretha Franklin, sounded like Johnny Cash, Joey Ramone. You know, it sounded like Jack Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, sounded like King. Bob Dylan sounded like the Declaration of Independence with a harmonica and guitar. I grew up in Dublin. We looked to America. We had a big crush on you all. And we saw a country with its own long-running arguments, its own injustices. We knew this promised land 
wasn't always keeping to that promise. We knew America wasn't living up to all its ideals. But the fact is, America had ideals. I love this song called America. I love it. I love it. Can you still hold that tune? I ask you as both fanboy and critic. Yes, you can. Of course you can. So those are the words of Bono. And that's how I go forward, with a deep love of our country and the realization that our work is never done. Not everything turns out as we want, but there are still many paths ahead. But most of all, I go forward with joy, with a spring in my step, to a tune that's not yet finished. That was Senator Klobuchar reading from her new book, The Joy of Politics. Now let's hear what Amy Klobuchar and Dee Dee Myers have to say about the state of American politics. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to today's Commonwealth Club program. I'm Dee Dee Myers. Senior Advisor to Governor Gavin Newsom and Director of the Governor's Office of Business and Economic Development. So first, the club would like to thank the Bernard Osher Foundation for supporting today's Good Lit event. And it's my pleasure to introduce my friend, Senator Amy Klobuchar, author of The Joy of Politics, Surviving Cancer, a Campaign, a Pandemic, an Insurrection, and Life's Other Unexpected Curveballs. For over 16 years, Senator Klobuchar has served as a U.S. Senator and was the first woman elected to represent the great state of Minnesota. Her new book, The Joy of Politics, is a candid look at some of the personal difficulties that she and her family have faced, along with the unprecedented challenges and political turmoil that's threatening the state of the American democracy. So with that, let me say, Amy, welcome back to the Commonwealth Club. So excited to see you and to talk about your new book. Well, thanks, Dee Dee. I'm thinking back to many, many years ago when I was actually in LA with you and you moderated one of my first books, Center Next Door. That was exciting. And here we are again. I don't think that this kind of virtual book discussion existed back then in this forum. So I'm excited to talk about the book. And it's great to have so many interested people with the Commonwealth Club. And thank you for supporting authors all over the country. Yeah, and the Commonwealth Club, as you know, is a venerable institution here in California, so we're delighted to have you in the state virtually. The president was here today, so that was exciting for us. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, I was thinking today about the first time we met, which was many years ago when Senator Wellstone invited me to come to a fundraiser during your very first campaign for Hennepin County District Attorney. And I remember you talking about your dad then, and here we are a couple days past Father's Day, and I know that uh, you lost him. He's a theme not only in this book, but in your previous book, The Senator Next Door, and just wondering, you know, what kind of an effect has he had on your career, and how did he help shape the senator that you've become and the person that you've become? Well, sure. Well, thanks for asking, Dee Dee, and I remember that time well because I was running for county attorney, which is uh, like the DA uh, for about 45 jurisdictions, Minneapolis, and I was the first woman uh, running for and getting that job. And you were my only celebrity. You were it, man. You were in town for Paul and you came over to our event. So that's the first thing. And then as for my dad, yes, he uh, was a force to be reckoned with. He grew up in a hard scrabble mining town 
and went to a two-year community college and then finished up at the University of Minnesota with a journalism degree and started out in North Dakota with the AP and actually came after serving during the Korean War, came back to the Twin Cities where he was actually, he and two other journalists were the ones to call the presidential for uh, John F. Kennedy because my dad predicted California had been wrongly called, as I remember, for JFK, and then it went to Nixon, and Illinois was just kind of a mess, and so Minnesota (laughs) was the one outstanding, and the story was he was the one that called it, so that was cool, and then he went on to be this incredible journalist, newspaper columnist of the year nationally, sports writer for the Vikings, wrote a book, uh, 23 books, but one of his books was called Will the Vikings Ever Win the Super Bowl, (laughs) which is sadly still relevant today. So (laughs) he climbed the mountains the world over and really took on people's causes. And I guess that's part of my interest in politics since we had no political background. But through his column, people would write in with all kinds of problems with banks or different things. And he would just interview people, write funny stories about it uh, and help them out. And I still have people sending me yellowed versions of his column that had hung on their refrigerator door that would say, you helped my grandma at a really hard time. You wrote about my niece's wedding. You, you know, it was unbelievable. And he changed people's lives in that way. And so we lost him about two years ago uh, to Alzheimer's. It was late onset, but that's never easy. Uh, But to the end, he was holding court in his little room in the assisted living. And he was still using such a vocabulary of words that the uh, Liberian, a lot of the assistants were a Liberian. We have a big Liberian population. They uh, were learning new words from him all the time. And they would have the dictionary perched next to his bed. It did get a little funny when they'd say things like, now, when did he have lunch with Isaac Newton? (laughs) Like he did not have lunch with Isaac Newton. Um, But um, he really just was sort of, to the end, um, a man of faith, someone who had a great sense of humor. And so I miss him a lot, but it was good to be able to write a tribute in this book to him because he wrote the tribute to so many people, as he called them, ordinary people doing extraordinary things. Amazing. And what a legacy he has now in you, Senator. So just nice to to honor him in the Father's Day week also, speaking of uh, of this week, I'm going to ask you a few questions about current events, or what's happening in the world, and then we'll I mostly want to talk about the book. But today is, this week is, speaking of anniversary weeks, it is the anniversary of the Dobbs decision, the Supreme Court's misdecided decision to overturn Roe versus Wade. And I just wonder what your perspective is on that. How has it upended the political landscape? Is there any path forward through congressional action? And how do we deal with the Supreme Court as it is? No, I think for many of us that serve on the Judiciary Committee, you'll remember my questioning of several of the nominees, um, (laughs) um, people didn't really believe this could happen. I did, because I asked all the nominees about it, (laughs) including the last one, Amy Coney Barrett, who said that Roe wasn't super precedent when I asked her. And so that was part of the reason why we were so opposed to them, that many of us could see this coming. And when it happened, I think people were shocked over, you know, 50 years, nearly 50 years of precedent out the door, patchwork of laws in states, horrible stories like the one of the little girl in Ohio that no one could believe was raped and actually had to go to Indiana for an abortion. And everyone thought that story was made up. It wasn't one bit made up. Minnesota is kind of an island of 
freedom. Uh, we are surrounded. We're in a tough neighborhood, Wisconsin, having an old law on the books, despite the governor wanting to change it. Iowa, North Dakota, South Dakota. So we've had one of the women's health care clinics move over from North Dakota across the Red River to Moorhead, Minnesota. And we've continued to provide health care. And actually, our state legislature and governor passed a bill just this last session to make sure we protected the rights. And what we really need to do, we all know this, is codify Roe v. Wade into law. It is an immensely right position. And also, it's where the people are. You know, depending on how you ask it, 70, 80% of people, you have surprising things happen. You asked about politics. You know, in the middle of the prairie in Kansas, 500,000 people show up on the side of choice to vote against a very badly written referendum. My favorite thing after that vote was Alexandra Petri, who's a humorist for the Washington Post, wrote a satire in the words of those men that had drafted it. And it said, oops, our bad. We were so busy trying to take away people's rights, we forgot women could vote. Or, or the Saturday Night Live skit set in the Middle Ages, where they said, you know, why move forward when we nailed it back in 1223? Um, Basically, that's been the reaction of the public, that this is moving backwards and we should be moving forward. And that's why you see so many of us pushing to codify in this anniversary, codify Roe v. Wade into law. And finally, our Democratic Party got the message right. I would say uh, my former colleague and friend Al Franken always used to say that Democrats would do bumper stickers and they'd have one and then the next one would say to be continued and to be continued and to be continued. Ours on this one is simple. Women should have the right to make their own health care decisions, not politicians. And if I added one more bumper sticker, it would be and Ted Cruz should not be sitting in the waiting room. <laughs> no, a good points all. But you, you, you alluded to and you talk about in the book a little bit that this was a this has been a concerted effort by the Republican Party, right, to not only take over the court by going to, on a state-by-state level, winning state houses, controlling, redistricting, all those things. And now they're doing the same thing with voting rights. And so how do we make Democrats understand that this is a uh, war of attrition on the ground in the states? It's not all going to happen in Washington. You know, I think we saw signs that they did get that very much in the midterms, which is always hard for any president's party. But instead, we added a seat to the U.S. Senate, number of governors um, elected or reelected, uh, in purple states and even some red states. And so when you look at that, uh, you realize that people did get this. And uh, one poll I saw showed that over 30% of people voting said that democracy was their issue, um, number one issue. And I'm sure that was a bunch of independents, you know, whether it was the madman, deranged man with a hammer bludgeoning Speaker Pelosi's husband after reading a bunch of bad stuff on the internet about her, or whether it was uh, the voter suppression laws or limiting voting and to try to not allow voting on Saturdays in Georgia, or uh, whether it was the shadow of Donald Trump hanging over that election. People still responded big time because they believe in our democracy. They don't want it to go down the sewer and they're going to stand up and protect it because they're patriots. The freedom issue on choice uh, was, again, a big issue. People believe in that. It's not hard to see what side the two parties are on when it comes to that, whether you're a Democrat or a moderate Republican. 
Um, and then finally, I, the economy mattered, and it still will, and it still does. And as we've come out of this pandemic better than a lot of other nations, I think you're going to continue to see a focus on results and getting things done for people. Yeah, we have our work cut out for us, but we're here to do it. And so let's let's get into the book a little bit. And you know, there's so much to talk about in there. 2020 was an insane year for you, right? It was the true definition of Annis Orabilis. Um, you ended your presidential campaign endorsing uh, Joe Biden in that hot room in Texas. It was a big, big place, but a lot of great things happened. Uh, your your last live event of or one of them, right, pre-pandemic, but mm-hmm. um, w- but there was so much packed in between those two bookends, right? The the snowy yeah. announcement and the and, and and the you know obviously the good outcome to the to the campaign. But your husband got COVID, nearly died. You were diagnosed with breast cancer, as we've already talked about your dad. Insurrection has tried to overthrow the government. So you said you wanted to make something good come out of all that bad, but that's a boatload of trouble. Boatload of trouble. So I thought, who better write this than me about the joy of (laughs) politics? Uh, Because, you know, we have a lot of things that have gone wrong. Everyone lived through hell during that pandemic. Moms, you know, balancing their toddlers on their knees and their laptops on their desks. You've got kids that were really held back in terms of some of their progress at school because of the obvious. You had seniors, sadly, uh, who were most susceptible to dying from this disease. People literally lost their elders. Um, So it was a really hard time, but we came out of that. And I do believe that in politics, just like in everything else, yes, you lament the setbacks and there were some hard ones. And we'll talk about them, I hope, tonight, the Insurrection Center. But you also have to rejoice in the comebacks. And for me personally, that meant my husband got COVID early on. He was on oxygen for a week. There were no treatments at the time. There was no vaccine at the time. But somehow he made it through. Um, And it really makes you appreciate those you love every single day with them. Same thing with the breast cancer. I had a low-level stage 1A and I was in the middle of doing the hearings on the security failures uh, after January 6th. I was in the middle of leading a bunch of bills, including the Freedom to Vote Act in the Senate. But I just shouldered through with an amazing family and amazing doctors and nurses at Mayo Clinic and got through radiation. And it, again, was just this moment of gratitude. And one of the most amazing things about it was being able to help other people by announcing that I had it. I had so many letters and emails and texts from people who had put off their mammograms during the pandemic and realized, oh no, it's been three years. And then they went in and got it. Some of them found out they actually had cancer. And especially one woman I never met who contacted our office is now doing great. I got to call her and find out how she was doing. So, you know, those again were the comebacks. There are comebacks in all of this. How did you decide? Because you, um, at first you, you kept your diagnosis uh, mm-hmm. private, which I think is the right of every patient to decide how to handle it. But then you decided, did you always know you would eventually go public? Did you just want to kind yes. of get through the treatment process? I, did. I just work in a workplace where if you tell like one person in two days, you're getting a call from the press, honestly. So, or the, yeah. everyone knows. And I wanted to get through it in part because my dad was dying and this was supposed to be his time. I had to lead those hearings with Senator Blunt and a few other senators. I had to lead that bill, the Freedom to Vote Act, and do the negotiations. And I just thought, I don't want this about me right now. If I had missed a bunch of work, which I didn't have to because it was stage 1A, it turned into a lumpectomy. 
and was not as serious as some people have in like not as long a radiation period. But if I had missed work, then it would have been different. I would have told people then. But I just decided I want to get through these few months. And then I made the announcement shortly, you know, a few months after I found out. Yeah, I, I do like the Congress may be the gossipiest place on earth. If it's not the members, right, it's the press and it's the intersection. But one of the stories you mentioned in the book that I, I just thought only someone like you, you're obviously an incredibly public person. So there you are being wheeled into surgery. You're lying strapped down on a gurney. And one of your constituents comes up and lobbies you about about Burma. Yes, I was in the hospital gown. You know how they take your cell phone away when you're going to go on surgery. I had no one with me. I was laying there trying to be like Zen, like target on my breast, literally. Okay, so I'm just so they get the right one and everything. So and also you don't know if it's going to be a mastectomy or not till you're done. You give permission for them to do it just in case it's worse. So I'm laying there, just kind of okay, go there, and this woman comes up and she's like, hey. Hey, Amy, uh, I hope you don't mind if I talk to you about Burma. And I go, uh, not at all. And she went on about how hard it was. And so I, I go, okay, I really want to help, but I really don't have my phone right now to call anyone. And I said, so I'll get on it when I, you know, when I get out of the surgery. And while most people count sheep when they're, you know, being put under anesthesia, I was like saying literally to myself, don't forget Burma. Don't forget Burma. <laughs> And hours later, I wake up, my husband's there. The first thing I ask him, was it a lumpectomy or mastectomy? And he says, the lumpectomy. And I go, great. And I'm feeling kind of sick from the anesthesia. And they go, oh, one more thing. Can you give my phone? I got to write the staff text about Burma. That actually happened. So that wasn't like everyone else experiences. But maybe we're going to work on the boundaries a little bit. You know, there's not a lot of boundaries when you're a senator and you got to help people out. Everything is all mushed together, um, which is it definitely comes with the territory. So one of the things you do in the book, in addition to telling your personal stories, uh, obviously, which we'll continue to talk about, but you have some kind of life lessons and some other, I don't know, words to live by, if you will. And one of them was uh, a woman who was dying of cancer, who wrote to her kids, writing kind of an obit for her kids. And she wrote, may you always remember that obstacles in the path are not obstacles, they are the path. How did that help you? And how do you think, what do you think it means for the rest of us? Yeah, I think as we all think about our lives, especially these last few years, that everyone had these obstacles and you can just let them paralyze you. So you can't move thinking, why this happened to me? Why did I get all this at the same time? That is your first reaction. It should be, I think, because yeah. you feel pretty bad if something, you get some bad news. And then trying to put it in perspective, not just saying, you know, there's the typical, a lot of other people have it worse than me. True. But it's also then trying to see the obstacles as your way to get there. And when I look back at my life, yeah, my dad struggled with alcoholism through his life. And that taught me a lot about people with addiction. And when I got to the Senate, it gave me the ability to be able to work on that. Or when our daughter was born, she couldn't swallow and she was really sick. And I fought for one of the first laws in the country, which you guys remember it, working with Bill Clinton. And that then became a national bill guaranteeing new moms and their babies a 48-hour hospital stay. Or when we were given the worst of all situations with a smashing 50-50 majority in the U.S. Senate in the last Congress, yes, that was our number with just a tiebreaker. 
from Vice President Harris, we somehow, after everyone was down on, oh, what do you guys get done? Da, 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 we somehow, during the summer, right before the midterms, passed phenomenal legislation, biggest investment as these fires are raging in Canada, biggest investment in climate change, no one knows it's better than California, uh, in the history of America, or finally taking on the pharmaceutical companies uh, to say you've got to have negotiations under Medicare. I would even go with more drugs than the ones that we listed for negotiation. We finally were able to pass the semiconductor bill, so we make chips in our country again. Again, big for both Minnesota and California. The uh, the work that we did on um, voting 98 to 1 uh, that Sweden and Finland should be in NATO and standing together on that. The only no vote was Josh Hawley. Uh, <laughs> and guess who got to follow him on the floor with all the Swedes and Finns in the gallery cheering in their military? That I, I did. Um, yeah. um, and then the, the gun safety bill, which we all know was just a beginning, but the fact that we, on a bipartisan basis, with leadership from Chris Murphy and John Cornyn and a group of us were able to move that bill to finally say, okay, we're going to close the boyfriend loophole. That was my bill for um, over a decade. And we're going to put more money into mental health. And mostly it showed that we had the ability to stand up to the NRA for a change, especially on the Republican side, obviously. So there were a number of things that were not everything I would have done, but I think it was a lot farther than people thought we could have gone with a 50-50 majority, including, by the way, the infrastructure bill and the broadband and everything else we did. This is the Commonwealth Club of California radio program. Today we're hearing from Amy Klobuchar in conversation with Dee Dee Myers. I'm Gloria Duffy. You can learn more about the Commonwealth Club, its many events, its travel program, and how to become part of it all at commonwealthclub.org. And now, back to our program. Right. And those bills are also critical to us here in California, right? The IIJA, which will allow us to rebuild our infrastructure, the IRA in particular, which will accelerate our transition to a zero carbon economy. And we're really grateful for all that work. Plus, we're also trying to be on the cutting edge of uh, stopping gun violence and keeping our kids from getting uh, killed at school, among other things. Yes. And I've appreciated the governor's words on all. It's just everyone in every state has encountered these mass shootings. And yeah, it's a horror. It's a horror. Uh, and we'll keep we'll keep fighting. But, you know, in the book. So another area that's like this is, I think, when when your husband had COVID so early and so seriously, and that led you to lead efforts to try to get a vaccine and, and get it accessible to the American people. Mm-hmm. It was for me seeing it happen. And just suddenly, you know, to remember, we're just starting to figure out what we're going to pass. Um, and he's acting sort of stranger and stranger, not remembering what I said. And finally, I get him, you've got to drive yourself. At this point, we know he's most likely has it, but it took 10 days to get the COVID test back back then. Wow. He finally just drives himself to a small hospital in Virginia and they meet him in the parking lot and then they do these tests and they're like, you have pneumonia. For a month when he talked, he would (gasps) like a hitch in his breath. And it was just so lucky his oxygen levels were down to the 60s that he didn't have to go on a ventilator. And it was just pretty much serendipity sometimes who got sicker Uh, than other people, though. He just was out for drinks with a friend of ours before Donald Trump had revealed uh, what we now know he knows from Bob Woodward's book that he knew then uh, that so much of it was airborne. But 
back then it was just much more thought it was on surfaces and things. And so this friend of ours was coughing, but he didn't have a temperature or anything. And it, he later found out he had the antibodies and that was the only time he was sick. So it was kind of a, you know, what we now call a super spreader, but didn't know it. Um, yeah. And I was supposed to go with them. I didn't go out for a drink and my husband did. And that's what happened. Yeah. And, you know, it just puts you right back into that time when there was so much uncertainty and, and people not being able to see, like you weren't able to see him. So, um... no, we were just, you know, I would just talk to him on the phone. I would call, he would say things that again, cause his, he'd say, well, I, I got to get out of here cause my oxygen's at 97 or something. So it's wrong. And I call the doctor, why is he still there? And they go, that's on oxygen. That's what it <laughs> yeah. is. So you're just, you can't even check on elementary things because uh, you couldn't be there. So yeah, things have come a long way since then. Well, I'm glad he survived and as well. We all mostly got through this, although there was certainly a lot of loss and a lot of pain. Uh, but speaking of that, another life lesson that you talk about comes from Hubert Humphrey, uh, who says, despite everything that he went through, that he remained an optimist with joy, uh, without apology about the country and about the American experiment. And then you also talk about Paul Wellstone, right, who after losing yeah. a hard-fought vote on the Senate floor, told his gloomy staff, okay, we lost, but where's the joy in this office, right? What happened to the joy? What's up with you people from Minnesota? What is all this joy in politics? Well, that was actually a signature Humphrey quote, which um, the politics of joy, and he was the happy warrior, right? And was someone that accomplished an incredible amount, not just as vice president, but in the Senate. And in part was that he just loved his work and it was contagious in a way. So that's where that came from. But Paul's story, yeah, that was pretty funny. Paul was like poking fun of himself because he was someone else that loved the job and had friends with people like Orrin Hatch that you wouldn't believe, but always loved the political process and just taking on the fight. But there was something about it where he also did it with a smile on his face often. And so the story was he went down to the Senate and the Senate floor. There was some amendment he was trying to get done. He was speaking out. There was a vote. He got blocked. He was like, it was like a big defeat. And of course, the whole office, if you've been in those office scenes, are watching it on the closed circuit C-SPAN, maybe back then, I don't know, but the Senate TV and uh, he walks into the office and they're just in the heart building and they're just all like this because they know he's really mad. And he was, as I don't know what he was, five foot two, five foot three, five foot four, five. He was, very, he's short, right? Uh, but he like summon it's all up and he looks out over all of them and with clearly some sarcasm because he was so mad about it. He's like, where's the joy in this office? <laughs> What is wrong with all of you? <laughs> so no, I think the I message was, you know, we go on to the next fight. And uh, clearly a lot of my stories in here about things like that bill I had on closing the boyfriend loophole or, you know, the big work way back that Dingle did right on the trying to get health care and the Affordable Care Act. And then you finally uh, get that done after years and years of trying you get things in place that maybe don't happen right away. And that's what you have to remember when you're in this game, because it's not all going to happen at once. You come back, something changes, the public's more with you. You're the one that was out front. Maybe you have some battle wounds because of that, but there is merit in leading and being the first one there and doing it with joy. 
Yeah, and then sticking with it, right? Because the obstacles are the path. Let's move on to the to the 2020 campaign. You were among several women who were in, in the race, record number of women running for president, which was an accomplishment in itself. But you said you faced a hurricane-sized headwind. What what was that headwind? <laughs> the orange tornado? Elizabeth, yeah. Kamala, Kirsten, we all faced it. And that is that, and the polls backed us up on this, people thought a woman couldn't beat Donald Trump. They really kind of thought that. And some of it unfairly was about um, um, Secretary Clinton's race against him, which, as we now know now, had all kinds of issues, including being the first woman and putting herself out there like that. But I think people just saw him and thought, oh, we got to win and a woman can't beat him. And so that was clearly a factor for us. Now, the good side is it was a record number of women running in one night or two nights. They had, there were so many of us, they divided the first debate in Miami into two nights. But in those two nights, we doubled the number of women ever in the history of America on a primary a presidential primary debate stage. And we showed people, and which really hadn't happened before, that you could have different views and debate on things. I remember Elizabeth and I had a number of normal debates about issues on the debate stage. Um, you could look different. You could wear different clothes. You could come from different parts of the country and still be out there doing this. And I think that was really important for women running that moment. And then I also thought, for me, it just gave me an ability to talk about some of these issues that actually weren't getting talked about as much, rural issues, which I mentioned before, addiction, some of the issues for seniors. I was the first one out there with an infrastructure bell, which I guess Joe Biden's done a good job of getting out there now. It just, it was an extraordinary thing to be up there and bring people along and then use that power that I got through that, where our campaign lasted so much longer than Anyone thought that it would when I first announced in the middle of the snowstorm, which was covered like, is it going, is she really going to do this? Uh, is like the whole stage going to collapse under snow? To go that far to get up to through almost through Super Tuesday with my own decision, not anyone telling me to do it, uh, deciding that that could have made that thing last for another month or so and tried to get into the next debate, which I would have done. I just decided the best thing for the country with. Donald Trump looming above with the pandemic. And even though my numbers were strong, there were people urging me to keep going because you never know what happens in politics. I just decided that the best thing for the country on my own terms was to get out then. I did have a Bill Clinton thing happen, though, in New Hampshire when I when I uh, came in third. I read Bill Clinton's speech from that time because he acted like he won, even though he didn't. Come <laughs> back, speech Exactly. You know? And that was fun that night. I remember looking at his speech from New Hampshire as I was doing mine, and that was fun. And we had a surge, but it was kind of too late to be able to, while the money started pouring in then, to be able to build the infrastructure that we needed in, in these other states, not just Nevada and South Carolina, which was clearly going to be Joe Biden's, but some of the other states. But it was still an extraordinary experience. The people that we met the, that just in my memories forever, they were incredible. The woman on the Nebraska-Iowa border whose whole house had been taken down from flooding, just standing there with binoculars and saying to me, I just love the kitchen. I love the kitchen. <laughs> I would always sit in the sun in the kitchen. Or the guy that just started bawling because I brought up John McCain, who was a good friend of mine, 
in one of my talks at a town hall and he was crying and then he told me that his son had been in the military, his son committed suicide and that he had also, the man himself, had served in Vietnam and loved John McCain and was so upset. It was around that time period that Trump had been going after John McCain and we had, yeah, we had just lost John McCain. Yeah. Um, yeah, those stories are, uh, they, they, they leave a, they leave a permanent mark on you. Um, but you mentioned John McCain. You tell some funny stories about sitting next to him at the inaugural in 2017. Uh, and, you know, he yep. was such a special person uh, and so funny. Yeah, he was. People, I think, don't realize how funny he was. But he, uh, yeah, I had this seat that I think anyone would have loved to sit in. Um, somehow I sat between Bernie Sanders and John McCain. And this is the Trump, well, we chose to sit together. This is the Trump inaugural, of course, Bernie had run for president and then had gotten out for had gotten out of the right. Hillary was the nominee. McCain, of course, had run right against Obama. So I'm sitting in between them, but everyone's trying to be on their best behavior, honestly, because it's a new president's inauguration. And even if you didn't support that person, uh, you got to at least act the part here. This is a transition of power. But McCain was hilarious because he, I think, more than anyone knew exactly what we were facing, but he also knew the evil we were facing, which he had just taken me on a trip to Georgia, the country of Georgia, Ukraine, Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia to show our neighbors and how prescient he was that we were standing with them. So here we are, and people start filing onto the stage, and McCain turns to me and whispers this, this inauguration setting a record. And I go, what record? I don't know. I thought it was something he goes, most money ever spent on plastic <laughs> surgery on an inaugural stage. <laughs> okay, that's a true story. Then he, um, when it got dark, and it got dark fast, um, McCain started listing dictators um, <laughs> like Mussolini and as words from Trump's speech resonated and he listed them with the words and I never wrote down what they were, but he would actually list a Mussolini speech, you know, blah, blah, blah with the year and Huey Long. I read, those are the only two I remember. Blah, blah, blah with the year. Uh, people that would use their power in ways that he didn't agree with. Uh, and said things that he didn't agree with. And so I remember Bernie and John and I were just speechless when we left. And a reporter saw us and said, what do you have? And we were all ready to be like, well, you know, we just couldn't say anything because it set the tone for then what happened the next day uh, when he went in front of that CIA wall. That's when I knew like there wasn't some silver lining here of all those agents that had been killed in the line of duty who were nameless with just stars on the wall and gave a political speech and talked about his crowd size at the inauguration. That happened. That was, it's been lost to history, but not lost to me because it was the same day as the women's March. And I remember coming in from the streets and where it had been kind of this, you know, joyous, exuberant thing with all these women talking about protecting their rights. And then you came in and you saw that scene on the TV on a split screen with the Women's March. And it kind of yeah. summed up what our next four years were going to be like. Yeah. And, and the answer was brutal, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. In hindsight. Clearly, you know, you we talked about a couple people I know you admire, Senator McCain, Senator Humphrey. What's the, this is a question from one of our viewers. What is the best piece of professional advice that you've received and who was it from? Huh. Oh, well, um, I think it was 
probably my mom, uh, who was a teacher, and she taught second grade until she was 70 years old. She had 25 second graders. And her, I wouldn't, I don't know if I call it advice, but her passion was just serving and enjoying it while she did it. Man, she loved her job and she would like dress up as a monarch butterfly when she did the <laughs> unit on butterflies and, and metamorphosis and all of this. So that was pretty good. Then I'd say the other advice that was more on the political side that I got later was basically as a woman candidate. And this is from, we didn't have, we had one woman in Congress, Betty McCollum. And before that, uh, we had a woman in Congress who actually named Koya Knudsen, who had a pretty good career. She was from a rural area. It was in the 50s, 40s, 50s. And her career ended when her husband got drunk with her political opponents. And they got him to write a letter to the newspaper that said, Koya, come home. I need you to clean the house. And then she lost her next election. That was our rich history, right? So the only other woman in a executive position at the time was the lieutenant governor and then the secretary of state, a woman named Joan Grove. So she would give me a lot of good advice. Well, told me to get new shoes, you know, that kind of <laughs> yeah. stuff. Velcro rollers, you know, all kinds yeah. of like this thing. One time new bra, she actually did that. Um, okay, but she also um, would uh, tell me to just deal with the criticism that it's going to happen. And it, of course, has only gotten worse with the social media platforms and the like, that you just have to deal with it. And that is the advice I have passed on to other women, because a lot of times women think that they can't run because they don't know enough. One of the stories I relate in the book is a legislator recruiting people to run in a seat and went to a really qualified woman. She says, no, Trade's really big in my issue. I don't know a thing about her. I shouldn't run. She goes to a less qualified man. The man says, sure, yeah. Oh, yeah, I know trade's a big issue, but, you know, I own, like, I don't know what it was. You know, it was like a Volvo or something. It's got some American parts. I can deal with trade. I get the, I get the nuance. <laughs> yeah. So the point of it is I think women especially set these higher standards for themselves when they're going to run. And I think that's gotten better over the years. But when I first ran for Senate, it was, I relate to me story. It was unbelievable. The things my opponent's campaign manager called me miscongeniality, which is kind of funny in light of, right. but he, but you know, he was like, that was just perfectly fine to have him say those kinds of things. Or I remember speaking to a group of retired steel workers in Northern Minnesota, where my dad was from the iron ore mine region called the iron range. And this woman stood up, Rose Bradovich, and she goes, well, I got to say, in all my years voting, I have never voted for a woman. I think they should be home with their kids. But in your case, I'm making an exception. And, <laughs> well, there two funny things is, one, the mayor was a woman. And she later told me at that moment she knew that Rose Bradovich had never voted for her before. <laughs> um, but then the second thing was that Rose Bradovich would send me like $5 every month after that. <laughs> um, so, you know, you kind of. It was a time where people were more outwardly talking about those kinds of things, and you had to overcome it. And uh, we had had two women candidates lose who were both very well qualified, the former majority state Senate majority leader and the former secretary of state, the woman I mentioned. And so there were a bunch of reporters that would ask me all the time, uh, can a woman win? And are you running as a woman? All this stuff. And then I'd always say, no, I'm running for what I want to get done for people. 
and I'm running as my work as prosecutor, I'm running, I would like list these things that I'd done pretty simply, as you remember, um, a much different time than it is now, but some of those mindsets uh, still exist. No, no doubt. Uh, we're still, you know, so we've made a lot of progress and yet we're still fighting some of the same battles. Another question from the audience, what is the best part of your job and what is the most challenging? I think you've touched on some of it, but. Um, one of the best parts of my job is just getting things done and yes, passing bills in Washington. Um, and I have a good track record of that, but, um, it's also when you do little things for people at home. Um, it's an unbelievable thing to walk into a graduation. I did 10 this last, uh, two months, uh, walk into a graduation and have a kid come up beaming and say, you know, you helped my mom and me when I was a little kid. You helped us get into this country and we wouldn't be here. And it's like family lore. They've got the letter when we helped them, whatever it was at the time, a visa the, um, to, to emigrate to our country. Um, they're, you like, they are there and they believe, whether it's true or not, that they wouldn't have been there without you and without our staff, most significantly. It is getting a veteran benefits that got screwed up with red tape. And the guy, I still remember the guy that lost his leg. It was either in Iraq or Afghanistan. And he, he loses his leg and he has a letter that says, we don't have proof that you lost your leg. So <laughs> he didn't have a leg. Okay. <laughs> and so, so we were able to fix that <laughs> very quickly by making some calls along those lines. Okay, one more amusing one. I had a guy that... For 15 years, the IRS believed he was dead, and he kept trying to like pay his taxes and get his taxes, and they kept writing, you are deceased, like this person is deceased, and I, we finally fixed it, and he got a few thousand dollars back for over the 15 years, but he's like, it really feels good to have your government acknowledge that you're alive. <laughs> he said it on TV. On Fox, he, he's like, for 15 years, no one would admit I was alive. And, you know, I got kids. I got, and you do kind of wonder how it got to this point, but that it did. It did. And it was because the number, his name was wrong and something. So there are those things. Um, but then there are just those moments that, you know, when you pass the bill for the guy whose kid got killed in a swimming pool because their intestines got pulled out and maimed and... This had happened like four or five of these every single year. And we finally passed a bill to have some standards for the pool drains, which wasn't even that expensive. And then you get to call the dad from the cloakroom who literally thought that a freshman senator was going to be able to get that bill done, even though I never thought that we could. You know, that's something. And then to find out 15 years later that no one has died since that time that same way. And when they used to all the time, um, that bill was, by the way, named after Jim Baker's granddaughter who died in the same way that we worked with their family. So those are just things that get you through the really hard times. The hard times are, of course, just the frustration of, oh, my God, I, I could just like go on and on. But see, I'm not lamenting the setbacks. The Afghan Refugee Act right now, I'm a big believer in immigration reform. I think that no great nation has gone forward and expanded with a shrinking workforce. And I think we just in general... I need to have immigration reform for our economy. But um, in the case of the Afghan refugees who are here, 
80,000 of them, the majority of which have letters from our own military vouching for them, chief of mission, 40,000 of them explaining they'd been interpreters in Afghanistan, that they gathered security, that they were at great risk, and that we're just sitting there. Um, we have a model when the Hmong came after Vietnam. We basically took them out of limbo with their status, with the path to citizenship. And Lindsey Graham and I have a bill now, along with Senator Wicker, Moran, a bunch of Democrats, to put them on that same path. But we just keep getting stymied. I think we have a very good chance of getting it done this year. But But that has been a frustration. Dealing with trying to get rules on the tech companies in place has been highly frustrating for me, just because I think we need to have some rules of the road for privacy and competition and other things. As my husband said to my daughter, which I recount in the book last summer, be nice to your mom this weekend. She's taken on the four biggest companies the world has ever known, and she just got banned from Russia. Um, so that kind of, those are moments, you make, know? Make, Making yeah. friends in, in high places. Yeah, um, yeah so it, it is, uh, uh, obviously it's a daily challenge, right? The daily joys, the daily frustrations, and then there are the epic moments. And uh, I don't want to let us get through this without you talking a little bit about what it was like to be in the Capitol on January 6th sure. uh, and your role in that historic moment. And then yeah, fast forward to two weeks later and you're sitting there for the inauguration of, of our current yeah. president. Well, that day was started with pomp and circumstance. Senator Blunt and I run the rules committee. He just retired, but it was our job to make sure that we counted the ballots and then we were in charge of the inauguration. And we led that parade of senators with the three pairs of young women with the mahogany boxes containing all the electoral ballots. And 14 hours later, uh, with the Capitol in shambles, uh, with the citadel of our very democracy attacked, uh, we made that same walk. But this time, everyone had gone home in the Senate, except for me and Roy and then Vice President Pence. And there were these three pairs, the same three pairs of young women with those boxes, uh, with the last of the electoral ballots up to Wyoming. And we made that walk over the broken glass this time and spray-painted pillars. And we said democracy would prevail, and it did. And two weeks later, there was a lot of people who wanted to put that inauguration in a bunker, including a bunch of senators. And Roy and I, and most importantly, then-President-elect Biden, did not feel that way. We felt it was important to take back that platform that they had invaded and those weren't real windows behind us. They were plastic. Those weren't pillars of marble. They were painted white uh, because they'd spray painted them. But we were up there under that beautiful blue sky. And two lasting memories was uh, Lady Gaga. Okay, we wore the same dress and I had to go home and change. No, not really. But Lady Gaga standing there robustly singing the Star Spangled Banner and motioning to the flag and singing, um, and our flag was still there. And then the beautiful poet Amanda Gorman, 22, youngest inaugural poet ever, composing her poem in the two weeks in between the inauguration and the insurrection, and standing there basically wiser than uh, the rest of us and saying we must find light in the never-ending shade. And, you know, it was just this moment that uh, you really can't recreate. I remember when um, uh, Garth Brooks actually filled in for someone else who will go on name because he, the person decided not to come. And so with three days notice, and so Roy and I didn't even know what song he was going to sing. And he sang Amazing Grace. And it was, again, this moment of joy. And while, you know, maybe I thought a Pollyannish, oh, this is done now. And yet we had voter suppression laws introduced 
the next week, uh, we still have to remember that democracy prevailed and the people prevailed. Yeah. And I guess that's what gives you optimism, Senator, as you and gives you joy as you go forward. I saw today uh, for the first time a, a, a President Biden television commercial. It was by a, a committee, but we are entering into election season. We have a lot of work ahead of us. Uh, and so one of the questions from our audience is what can Democrats do to improve messaging? Uh, well, I gave you the example of the on the abortion fight. I think we actually got it down simply uh, what we were talking about there, that women should have the right to make their own decisions about their health care. And I think that we have so many results. We're in a results-oriented business. So a lot of this is just to make the case uh, that we stand with people and we've got the proof points to show it. So it doesn't mean that you list a laundry list of bills. It's just that you say, hey, we're in a better place right now and you're in a better place and this is what I want to do to fight for you. And you got to make it really clear. I think the economic piece of this is more important than people think. I think bringing down costs for people, where the pharmaceutical bill is so important, it's going to be a lot of the theme of what's on people's minds. But then freedom's also on the ballot and democracy. And I think we learned a lot in the shadow of Donald Trump, if not on the ballot, is going to be looming above. We've got the midterms as a guide to where people were. And then you just have to organize and and get people to out to the polls and voting early and doing everything that is so important in campaign. So I, I don't bemoan the messages as much only because I visit all 87 counties in my state. I was just, I'm just in four more near the Canadian border. And whether people are Democrats or Republicans, they want someone that will look them in the eye and tell them the truth and fight for them. That's what they care about. And uh, I know that you will keep fighting. There's so much more that we could talk about. And we certainly didn't get to all the questions in the chat. You did touch on a lot of them in your answers. So thank you for that. Thank you for the book, Senator. It's really a fun read. It's a first draft of history, as we say, as the best books are, memoirs are. And I'm sure people will be reading it and reading about those historic moments for years to come. And we'll see what happens as we go forward in this election cycle. So thank you again for being here. Thank you for writing the book. Thank you for fighting the good fight. I encourage everybody to pick up a copy of Senator Klobuchar's book at your local bookstore. Let's all support our local bookstores. I know I support mine. Uh, That's Chevalier's book on Larchmont Boulevard in Los Angeles. Uh, And thank you to the Commonwealth Club. And with that, let me say thanks again, everybody. Have a great evening. I'm Dee Dee Myers, and it's been a pleasure being with you. Thanks so much. Thanks, Dee Dee. Thank you for joining us for the latest episode of the Commonwealth Club of California radio program, featuring Amy Klobuchar in conversation with Dee Dee Myers. Please join us again next week for a talk with Michael Waldman about the impact of the current U.S. Supreme Court. I'm Gloria Duffy, President and CEO of the Commonwealth Club. You can stay in touch with us on our events by signing up for one of our newsletters at commonwealthclub.org slash email. Find thousands of our programs on Apple Podcasts, Audible Podcasts, and YouTube. When you're in the Bay Area, please join us in person at the Commonwealth Club of California. To hear the entire hour-long version of these conversations, download the program from the club's website or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.